Hey everyone, I know you've heard me speak about microdosing and how much I love it. And I'm talking about microdosing THC. I love it. And that's why I love our sponsor, microdose.com. Microdose gummies are incredible. They deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. And when I mean just the right amount of good, I mean in so many situations, anxiety, sleep, focus, pain, relaxation. There are so many different strains and they're really helpful. And I have recommended microdose.com to so many people. And you know what they say to me? Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Don't be afraid of microdosing. Go to microdose.com and you'll learn all about microdosing THC. These gummies feel amazing. They taste amazing. I have used them to get me into the zone I need to write. I've used them at night after a stressful day or a stressful show to relax. I have also said to family members, please take a gummy right now. And they've said, oh, good idea. So check it out. Check it out because they're fantastic. And I'm not like a big weed person. I mean, I used to be. And I do enjoy, I do enjoy weed every now and then, but I love, I love these gummies and I take them with me everywhere. So check it out. Don't be afraid. They're all natural. They're fantastic. And you deserve it. So what are you going to do? You're going to do something that is fantastic. You're going to get 30% off your first order. 30% off. That's a lot. Plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Use promo code Judy Gold, J-U-D-Y-G-O-L-D. It's available nationwide. They deliver it to your door. That is microdose.com, promo code Judy Gold for 30% off and free shipping. Do it. Go to microdose.com, promo code Judy Gold. You deserve it. You deserve it. And you know what else? You're welcome. Well, I don't see the point in waiting any longer. Let's bring her out. The star attraction, the one you came to see. Ladies and gentlemen, the one, the only, Ms. Judy Gold. Okay, everyone. Hello. Um, I definitely had a lot of coffee this morning. Welcome to Kill Me Now. Uh, our guest today has a brand new album out. First album, only album, Airports Animals. He is a filmmaker. He is an activist. He is a comedian, writer, producer. You know, he does a lot. So you should all feel like shit when I welcome to the podcast today, ladies and gentlemen, Sean Devlin. Woo! <laughs> Hello. Thank you Hi, for Sean. having me. <laughs> Sean, how are you? Mazel tov. Mazel tov on your... On your album, um, you Thank know, you. A, as a comedian, I've been doing this since I'm 19. Uh, you know, I grew up listening to comedy albums. Um, that's how we listened to stand up. And I feel like it's an interesting choice for you to do an album when you're a filmmaker. It, it's fascinating to me. I would listen to comedy albums over and over and wanted to hear these bits over and over. And uh, once someone sees a comedy special, that's it. They don't want to see that stuff um, anymore. So why did you decide I'm gonna I'm gonna sh- do an album and not shoot a special? Because you know you are a filmmaker. Um, I guess it was cheaper. Um, Money, yeah. <laughs> anyway, so you so you decide you went you went the route of a comedy album because it was cheaper. I love listening. It's just, it gives you more. And you said you're not a physical, you know, your presence on stage isn't going to help. Yeah. I'm not doing act outs. So uh, yeah, it definitely felt natural to just do audio. And it was, did you say you started when you were 19? Yeah. I also started at 19. Yes, I know. I have it written down here. And 
And it felt like if I took this long, if I took 18 years, like I'll just do one baby step of doing audio. And then maybe in 18 more years, I can do a special. (laughs) Right. So you did, you were, your 19 year old years old was 2002. And my 19 years old was uh, 1981. Okay. Take care, everyone. (laughs) Um, Anyway, uh, let's go back. You are, your name is Sean Yops. Like, I want to say it right, but I'm not going to. That's okay. Yopsi or Yopsi? In English, it's Sabine. Oh, it's it's not well, Yap Sabine. Yeah, Yap Sabine. Sorry, there's okay. three names. Sean but... Yap Sabine Devlin. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. such a beautiful name. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's actually uh, a story full of uh, family drama and conflict, which was that uh, on my father's side, everyone's Irish. Irish yeah, mother's side Filipino Chinese. Right. My mom's last name was Yap. She didn't take my dad's name when they got married. She was a very uh, strong woman. She she was the bread earner in our household. So she was like, if anything, you should take my name. Um, and so she ref- refused to take his name. And then when I was born, uh, my father's mother, this, uh, you know, very uh, rigid uh, old Irish woman, di- never liked that my mom didn't take the family name. And so swooped in like literally after she had given birth still, I mean, I don't know how that works, but it sounds like it's really, really. But they do swoop in. They swoop in. Yeah. (laughs) And so in that very vulnerable moment, she swooped in and said, I'm naming him. Fuck her. And wanted me to have a full Irish name. So Sean with the Celtic spelling and everything. Right. Um, And then Devlin. And so my mom conceded to sort of make peace but she put her last name as my middle name and then gave me a, a Chinese uh, last name as well, Sabine, that she made up. So there was sort of like this inner family war played out uh, over my name. Right. Well, you know, there's a lot of inner family wars and I find your family to be fucking fascinating. Your mother grew up in the Philippines. She was a squatter. Uh, they escaped the Marcos regime, correct? Yeah, yeah. She uh, she lived in in those conditions till she was a teenager, and then yeah, she got out in her early twenties. She went to University of Alberta. Where wow, she met- you- <laughs> oh, I do, I do. You- this Amazing. Is, uh, she went to University of Alberta, where she met your father at a fundraising dinner for striking nurses, and he was serving soup. Okay. How do you even know that one? I I mean, I've told people that before, but I don't even remember where. That's amazing. I do a lot of research and everyone comes on as like, wait, what? How did you? And (laughs) I find people fascinating. And that's, I mean, this is a labor of love, my podcast, because God only knows I make no money, but um, (laughs) I just feel like people's stories are so important. Your mother, and I'm so sorry about her loss. You know, um, she sounds like, she was Filipino and Chinese, you know, did she talk at all about her upbringing? I mean, to come to Canada, right. And I mean, it must've been, you know, as a Jew, as a, and I have a lot of friends whose parents were Holocaust survivors and stuff. Is there that, was there any sort of survivor guilt from your mother or anything she passed down to you uh, or did you feel any sadness from her? I mean, I mean, the difference between your parents upbringing is so uh, incredible, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, And your mother was the accomplished one. So what was that? I mean, it must've been crazy growing up in that house. Yeah. She was also, I was the only child. So it's like all the, everything, all the focus, everything, you know, revolved around me. Um, so yeah, there was, I would describe it more like pressure. Um, not necessarily guilt. Any guilt was just of my own creation. And, and both my parents were raised Catholic. My mom was actually, before she immigrated, going to become a nun until she had a, 
a bad encounter with a priest who wanted to date her. Um, oh my God. You know, so, thank God I'm a Jew. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, so, so she left the church and, and, and my dad was raised, uh, was an altar boy as, as a child, but he also, you know, abandoned that as a teen, but I still had some of that Catholicism in my blood. So I definitely created certain guilt complexes, I think. Um, but yeah, she just passed on pressure. So she would say, you know, really specific, efficient things like, um, it took eight generations of my family to get to you and the opportunity that you have with this math test. <laughs> oh my um, God. That it, I'm going to say th- that is equal to worse than Jewish guilt. I mean, <laughs> that is really good. Okay. And what would you feel like? You don't even have a sibling to go. Mom is like fucking like really putting the pressure on. Like, I know you guys suffered, but, you know, it's a fucking math test, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I mean, I just bottled it up and and did the work. So I, I did really well in in school, pretty much in all my classes until I discovered comedy and, and realized right. that I wanted to be a funny person when I was about 13, maybe. And then I, I abandoned a lot of my uh, academic pursuits. Um, and that was a very difficult shift for my mother. Yeah, that's about um, the time, you know, I have two kids, um, two sons. That's about the time where you just are like, I had kids because why? Um, that 13 year old. But so growing up, you're, you're Canadian. Your mother was born and raised on the island of Tadoban, Tadoban. Oh, Takloban is, is a, the capital Tacloban. city. Yeah. Is the capital city in Leyte Island. So she was born on that island, but in a different town called Bateau. Okay. Um, I, my CL looked like a D. Okay. What, what was school like? I mean, was it just, first of all, you know, as an American, the idea that you never had to worry about uh, health insurance and all that. I mean, when I perform in Canada, you know, there's, I have such an edge because there's so much injustice. I mean, you're an, in, you're, you're, you really point out injustice, you know, that's your, you know, soul, right? It, it makes me so angry. And sometimes when I get on stage and I'm talking about, you know, orange fuck face or, um, the, the shit that goes on in our country, it's like the audiences I have to say in Canada are much more relaxed. Don't you think that they don't have to think about every fucking problem is another, is a, is a confluence of more problems to solve that problem. So yeah. Yeah. Did you, do you find that with American audiences versus Canadian? And what was it like growing up? without that, those kind of issues, you know? Yeah. I mean, healthcare is great. Um, I think the best word for Americans to hear is that the, uh, the state of your healthcare is pathetic. Like, uh, I know wow. that's hard to hear for a country that has a lot of pride, but yeah, what, what y'all are getting out of your whole deal over there is pretty pathetic. Right. <laughs> I'm sorry to break it that way. Uh, but yeah, it was great growing up with healthcare school for me. The first 10 years we were in Ottawa, my mom worked for the government and we were in like subsidized housing uh, with a bunch of migrant families. So I grew up with kids from Jamaica and Tanzania and South America. It was like really diverse. Oh, it was diverse. And then you moved to uh, Ontario? Yeah, Guelph, Ontario. Much smaller rural town, but... My mom got a job teaching at a university, so we got to buy our first house and this sort of thing. So it was definitely a step up, but it was a very, very white sort of borderline rural town. And so school was really, really different there. And uh, uh, yeah, that's that's where I just found comedy as a survival mechanism because- Right, right. In terms of, yeah. That's so fascinating that- you know, your mother also had two different lives, you know, but that you were so comfortable at such a young age and fit in, you know, it was like, and then you go somewhere and you're the other, which is exactly where comedy stems from. 
Yeah. And I think it's also an interesting nuance of we were on the upswing of class mobility, which is kind of the dream, right? Like right. that she would come to the country within, uh, you know, 10 years, be able to be middle class. And so on paper, financially, it was a fantastic step. Um, for me personally, as a kid entering, you know, the formative years of adolescence, uh, it was shocking. <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I just literally didn't even know what racism was until we moved to this town. Fucking um, crazy. And and I do remember the first time I experienced it. We were playing soccer. I was an I was an athlete, soccer, hockey mostly. And uh, it was all white kids. I was it was gym class. I was doing really well, scoring goals, and thought, you know. This is a great introduction for me to this this group right. of kids, and then uh, this kid on the other team who was who was pretty good and I think a bit jealous started calling me Ching, and uh, was just like Ching Ching like get Ching take the ball away from Ching, and then eventually everyone on his team started calling me Ching, and then eventually everyone on my team started calling me Ching, and, and I was just kind of confused. Like I honestly for a while thought that they were confusing me with like another Asian kid who was good right, at soccer, right. maybe <laughs> like, right. um, but after a while, the gym teacher blew the whistle and stopped the game. And, uh, I mean, to his credit, you know, late eighties or what is this, early nineties, I guess, rural Ontario, this gym teacher wasn't getting like racial sensitivity training. He right, wasn't, right. he wasn't equipped to deal with this, but he did his best. So he stopped the game and he took me aside privately, put his hand on my shoulder and he says, uh, Hey son, how you doing? I said, oh, I'm, yeah, I'm okay. And he said, is your name Ching? No way. <laughs> yeah, because he, I was new. So he right, also right, didn't know right. my name. Right. So he just wanted to check. And I said, no, no, my name's Sean. And he said, oh, okay. And then he realized what was happening. But then he still wanted to check. He said, do you like it when they call you Ching? <laughs> and I said, no, no, not really. They could just call me Sean. And, uh, so at the end of the gym class, he made them all circle up and he said, today's lesson is Sean's name is not Ching. And he made all the kids repeat this over and over. And I was just kind of awkwardly watching this and thinking how strange the curriculum was right. in this new town. Um, but that was when I first realized that I was sort of, I looked different. Right. It continued from there, but it, it was such a, a white town that a lot of the racism was like not specific enough to be hurtful because they weren't, they didn't know what a Filipino. Well, they're, all, they're dumb. They yeah, were yeah, dumb no. too. So yeah. mostly I got slurs for like Pakistani people and mm -hmm. Middle Eastern people, which again, it's not accurate enough to, I mean, it's still hateful, but not accurate enough to really cut. Right. Um, but that's sort of what I navigated, and that's where I just found comedy as a way to take control of such social a, it's situations. It's such a coping mechanism, and yeah. it's a weapon. And, you know, when you're good at it, it it's a really effective weapon. And it's disarming, Yeah, you know. Hey everyone, did you know that Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the United States with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the United States? And I'm one of them. You're listening to one of them. Fast Growing Trees has everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, house plants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and your space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer free plant consultation forever, forever. I just want you to know that I just got off a plane and I walked to my apartment. What was the first thing I did is I came in and said hi to Avi, my fig tree. I'm telling you, and I have Yael, which is another plant, but Fast Growing Trees has changed my atmosphere here in my apartment. You don't need a lot of space, but they do have, you know, they have stuff for outdoor spaces. But I live in an apartment, and I'm telling you, Avi and Yael, yes, they're both Jewish names, Hebrew, the space looks so much better. And I just had a conversation with Avi. Like, I was like, I missed you. I love having living things here. It's very, 
very, I don't know, it's made this more of a home. It's the best. And Elisa has some too. And she loves them. And she talks to them too. But she got that from me. Anyway, check out Fast Growing Trees. You need to be around plant life. This spring, they have the best deals online, up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code Judy Gold, J U D Y G O L D, at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com using the code Judy Gold at checkout. Fastgrowingtrees.com, code Judy Gold. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. You're welcome. Did you ever go home to your parents and say, like, I'm being called Chang and what the fuck is going on here? Or, you know, did you it was protect strange. them? There was, yeah, I guess I, I don't know if I was, I guess I was protecting them. I just didn't tell them. I think because I didn't have siblings, there was a lot that went un, unsaid in, in our family, including like, anything and everything to do with sex and the body. Oh, Um, please, same. (laughs) So I never told them, and it wasn't until my 20s that I, because I would talk about it on stage. I would tell some of these stories on stage, and then I I, I told them about it, and they were shocked a bit. And I definitely think my mom was quite sad that she didn't kind of know that this was happening. But but she also spoke, um, she spoke Mandarin, Cantonese, Tagalog, Sabon, she spoke like six languages. She, wow. she never taught me any of these languages, like not even a sentence. And so right. on some level, she also, I think, was aware that, you know, I might be bullied and definitely tried to uh, have me assimilate in the, in, in the best way possible she could. Did you, did your mother cook? Yeah, not really. She, oh, that sucks. <laughs> yeah, she. That fucking she, sucks. She would do certain things around holidays. She would like, you know, make spring rolls and something like that right. around holidays. But that was like special occasion. The rest of the time, I mean, she was really like, you know, going to work, putting on her little blazer with like padded shoulders. Right. Yeah. Um, and Shoulder pads. My, yep. my dad was more the one who who cooked. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so she she really rejected a lot of the gender norm things about. I love her. Like for instance, bake sales, like we'd have these bake sales and I would always come home and say, oh, mom, I'm supposed to ask you to like bake a pie because I need to sell it at school so we can like, I don't know, buy another soccer right. ball or something. And uh, she was always so offended that that she was <laughs> that she was being asked to bake to fundraise for, for the school that already had tax tax money supporting. Right, it. right. And so and that's she, what they they do something. The women who don't work. Cause they, yes. serve. yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so she always resented this. And so she would take me to the farmer's market and buy these chocolate cakes from these Mennonite women. And mm-hmm. then she would make me lie. She would say, okay, go to school and say that I made this. <laughs> I love her. And, and, and I, and I would, and people love those cakes. Cause uh, I don't know if you're aware, but Mennonites. Oh yeah. Chocolate cake. <laughs> Yeah, they, we have the Amish near. Yeah, it's really good. So, I mean, there's your parents were so, did they have a good marriage? I mean, they're so different. Do you they, think they, they were in love with each other? I mean. They were definitely, I think they were definitely in love. I, I heard, I, I saw them kiss and, and heard them have sex Ew. several times. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, they were very different in terms of their background and their personality. My dad was like very quiet, kind of reserved person, um, but they they eventually worked in the same field. So they would just talk work all the time. And because I was an only child, uh, I literally just would sit there and not know right. what they're talking about. And eventually just had to learn a bunch of, you know, bigger words like, right. you know, beyond my vocabulary to try to understand what they were talking about. Um they also worked to, they worked together in Mozambique in the seventies. Wow. Um, uh, when, when that, uh, that country had, you know, achieved independence and there was a, a an actual Marxist government, um, trying to, you know, African independent Marxist government trying to establish themselves. And they were working in the education department there and, you know, just, uh, trying to help through a, a volunteer service. And uh, so they learned Portuguese. The reason I explain all that wow. is that 
My my childhood, whenever they wanted to argue, which was a lot, they would argue in Portuguese. So I wouldn't know what they were saying, but yeah. obviously they were arguing. And right. in my adulthood, I had the fortune to eventually go a couple times and work in Brazil. And when I got there and started hearing Portuguese, I was like, all these people are so angry. <laughs> and I realized <laughs> that I just interpreted that was a cognitive. Yeah, yeah, that's so funny. That Portuguese yeah, my, was the language of anger. <laughs> yeah, my my um my mother and my grandmother. I, I remember my grandmother slept over every weekend, and I shared a room with her. She was born in 1896, and yeah. um, she was just incredible. Uh, and in the mornings. I would hear her and my mother, and whenever they didn't want us to know, they would speak German, which German with a little Yiddish. And I guess my my family came from Hungary, but they spoke German because that, you know, because the borders changed all the time. And I thought they were speaking Spanish. So I took Spanish in high school and they were speaking German. Okay, so. <laughs> but I would always hear like, and I'm like, what? And it was so fucking annoying. Um, so where do you think? All right. And then we'll move on. I'm just fascinated by your mother. This is a mother. No, I love it. I'm, I'm so happy to talk about her. Um, where do you think she got? I mean, because you talk about that your parents were were very political, very engaged and where do you think she got this incredible feminine? I mean, she's a feminist to the nth degree. Um, she's way ahead of her time. Where do you think, and growing up like that, how do you think she got like that? I mean, it's, it's incredible. And, and then my part two of the question is, how do you think it affects you as a straight guy that you were raised by? an ardent feminist. Yeah. Um, so for my mom, I think it, it, it's definitely on the, the, uh, matrilineal side of her family, but some of the context there is her dad, who was the Chinese person in her family. Um, he was actually sold as a boy. So he was born in mainland China and then was sold to a wealthier family that wanted a boy that then took him to the Philippines. So I, I never met him or, or, or uh, my grandmother on that side of the family. But from what I heard from my mom, he was just a really kind of lost man sold, because yeah. he had been sold and the family that bought him sort of bought him as an asset. And um, he was eventually homeless himself because the family oh. kind of sort of neglected him. So he really just was pretty deeply confused, I think. Whereas uh, uh, on my mom's mom's side, uh, her mom seemed like a really strong woman, but she she died when my mom was about four or five uh, from tuberculosis. Ugh. But then my mom, the, the period where she was a squatter was she was raised by her grandmother. And from what I understand, um, she was an incredibly strong woman who raised her under these extreme circumstances until she eventually passed. And then my mom had to, you know, journey across Step the country to go find, uh, find, uh, her dad. Um, but I think she got a lot of that from her mother and then largely from her grandmother who, who did really know who she was. And for instance, so her name was Philomena de Gohoy. Her last name was de Gohoy, but, the Dagohoi family was a family from a neighboring island that had actually been a central part of one of the first uh, wars for independence against the Spanish. So even though that family had been essentially eradicated and chased out, very similar to what happened with a lot of Jewish families, right? Um, the Dagohoi family, they all changed their names. Like the um, Jews, yeah. Yeah, to hide it. But my great-grandmother refused. She kept the name. Love her. Because she wanted, you know, the people that came after to know what the lineage was. So I definitely think it came from that. And I think when you have an experience like that, but then you're in a country where you get to see patriarchy played out to the extent that there's an actual dictator. I think your opinion of men and the role of women, because right. at least for my mom, becomes pretty clear. Right. 
And my dad is just, uh, and I say this in, in a, in a complimentary way is just a softy. He's just a yeah, soft passive. guy. Yeah. And I think she loved that and sought that out. Right. And so, yeah, I definitely grew up with a different model of both femininity and masculinity and yeah, definitely impacts who I am as a, as a person, as a straight man. I, you have my, a daughter. Yeah. You know, like it's so, oh, awesome. no, I don't have a daughter. Did, oh, no, oh, I mean, that would be that. I, I certainly, oh, no, you have a wife. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, no. A wife. <laughs> um, um, but yeah. I, I'm definitely told by, you know, women that I have very feminine. Yeah. You're not energy. Yeah. You're definitely in touch with all sides of you. You know, like, like, that's what I loved about your comedy too. It's so, you know, oh, thank you. Like I have, I'm a lesbian, and I have two <laughs> straight sons and there's a, they're very, uh, they, they know how to treat women. They have female friends, you know, like there's no, okay. like, I don't know how to be a friend with what, you know, like all these guys, you know, they don't objectify right. every single woman they see. Um, but there's a bro factor. I, which I don't know where the fuck they got it from. They're just into <laughs> sports and they're like, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I just love, I just love your mother. I'm, I'm sorry that I, um, that I, but did she ever find your father, her father? She did. She did. So when her grandmother eventually passed away, she had to, her uncle came and took her yeah. and said, I'm going to take you to, to find your father. Um, and so she had to journey to some other islands. She ended up on the island of Cebu, where he was working in a noodle factory. Oh um, and I, I like to tell people that if I tell you that my grandfather was Chinese and you assume that he worked in a noodle factory, you would be racist, but you would also be right. <laughs> <laughs> I love um, that. And so she eventually connected with him. And, and that was, I think she was about 13 at that point. Um, but you know, it was a strained relationship because, uh, he had, he had moved on and, and actually, uh, I, I'm, I'm comfortable to, to share this. I think you'll love this. This is like a, a scoop, if you will, a minor scoop. Um, when my mother passed away just a few years ago, we found something in her, um, safety deposit box that she had kept secret from us. And we knew as she got older that she, you know, there was a lot of stuff in her memory that she's struggling with mental health wise. And she had this constant need to kind of work. And we didn't really know where that came from. And so it turned out that her father actually had another wife and family in China. What? And so her being Catholic, you know, the Philippines intensely right. Catholic, but also in the Chinese culture, that's right. like... Like if you see the movie Crazy Rich Asians, this right. is literally like the central plot at the right, end. Right, right. Is that so? That was my mom. Was that she kept this secret, even from her family, from from my dad and myself. And uh, so I think that really just made her relationship with him really, you know, complicated, and also made her have a certain opinion of men. Right. Um, so oh, that definitely colored her. Um, yeah, opinion. definitely. But so you didn't do twenty three and Me or anything. Or ancestry, because then you would have found all your. Oh, I did. Relics. I've never done any of that. Yeah, yeah. yeah you'll find them all. Point. That's right. Wow. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. You know, I've never even thought of doing that. I don't know yeah. why, but yeah, that I, I might go you do that. You would definitely find them all. Oh, that's right. so interesting. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and. 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. You said that you got to high school and you, you, f you found comedy. So two things. I read that you idolized Tom Green's cable yeah. show. Yeah, yeah. Um, and also I, I love this. When you talk about this, you saw a comedy show in Dublin and yeah, you right. realized that you had this theory about why Irish people are funny, which is called the Gaelic brain. 
And I found this fascinating. Can you tell everyone about the Gaelic brain? It's just, it's such, it's like, yeah, go. Yeah. So the, this was maybe seven years ago. We went to, I went to Ireland for the first time. My, my mom, and my dad had both been there, but it was, I didn't really know why we were going. I knew they had to go and that I wanted to go. And uh, we did things like visit the cemeteries where my dad's, you know, family had been buried and he had never visited. And, and then wow. I realized it was something about aging that, you know, we went to the cemetery where his grandmother was and, and he just started crying and my mom was crying and I was like, Oh, what's going on here? And it was right. literally this moment where I, I, for the first time felt like I had to be the adult. So I sort of kind of, you know, held them and, and said a prayer because they seemed incapable in this moment of, of what was necessary. Um, but yeah, we went to, I said, I want to go see a comedy show. I need to see comedy. And we weren't there for very long, but there was this gentleman, Cecil Sheridan, who was doing a one man monologue show called The Gaelic Brain. And it was, you would actually love it. I, I wish there was, maybe there's a recording somewhere or if you could seek him out. Cause he spends a lot of time um, riffing on, you know, what we understand to be the Jewish kind of classic humor and Irish uh, humor. And specifically what he points out as the Gaelic brain is that when the British came in and Irish folks were prevented legally from speaking their language, it meant that everyone grew up thinking every thought in Gaelic in their head, and then thinking how to turn that into English and then speaking it in English and trying right. to do that on the spot in order to not, you know, go to jail or God knows right. what, even worse, maybe. And his belief is that generations and generations of this created this sharpened mind that Irish had where basically you had to do, you know, twice the thinking right. that a normal person does who can just think in their language and speak it. And he said, when you have to do twice the thinking and think so quickly, there's the opportunity to edit out thoughts. Um, so you could think of really sharp, witty things to say, and then maybe choose not to say them because right. you don't want to piss anyone off. But yeah, his belief was that this just sharpened the Irish mind and led to this kind of quick witted Irishness that that is essentially a stereotype, but also true if you spend right. time with Irish people, especially when they're when they're drinking, there's like yeah. so much, like my, my uncle on, on that side, the only man I've ever seen who could insult my mother to her face. And she loved it. Right. She would be cackling with laughter. And I had literally never seen anyone have the courage to, to insult her like in right. jest. And he could do it for hours, just burning her over and over, like making fun of her. And she loved it. Um, and yeah, so I, I'm, I really like this idea of the Gaelic brain, but it's from, or I don't know where he sourced it, if it was his own invention, but his name is Cecil Sheridan. You know, that's interesting about your mother, because, you you know, as a comic, to get mocked by someone, by another comic is like, a, I love you. That's really yeah, what it is. Yeah. It's like, I am taking the time to, you know, write, say shit to you because yeah. I care about you. But when you talk about the Gaelic brain, it's also that's what we do on stage. You know, yes. like people don't realize we're constantly editing and yep. deciding and oh, maybe I won't. They're going to hate this. Oh, I don't. I'm not going to do that. I'm not doing this tag. They have, you know, that's what we, we're constantly. It's such a part of, of stand up. Yeah. So when you so you you watch Tom Green's cable access show um, and you did you stu you studied with uh, the clown teacher Philippe Gaurier? Oh wow, yes, yeah, that was that was much later. But later. So the Tom Green thing was Tom Green's from Ottawa, right? I, I, because I was from Ottawa when I was about twelve. His show was originally just like public access, right? Like not, not even on you know national regional television, right. but. There was this guy, I think he was still a teenager, maybe, or certainly he acted like a teenager. Right. Um, and he just didn't give a shit about anyone. He was just out there doing this outrageous right. stuff. And I mean, I think not, not too many people, I think, hold him up in high esteem, but I think he was really ahead of his time because this was before Jackass. This was before right. reality television. Right. And 
he was like not just doing pranks, but also like turned his family into characters. Like he would mess with his dad and stuff that's now kind of what you see in every reality right. TV show. He was just doing this with a camcorder. Um, and but more importantly, he was just a kid from Ottawa. So when I saw that, I just thought, oh, you can you could do this. Like you can just be silly and get on TV and become right. You know, that could be your job. Yeah, it's so um, funny. I think we all have that. Like yeah. the, the realization, wait, I can do this for a living. Like, you know, when I saw Joan Rivers and Elaine Boozler and Tody Field, like all these people, and I was like, oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I can do that. Yeah. And and it was a cumulative thing. So this was probably 92, maybe. Right. But then 93, 94 was Mike Myers breaking out, Austin Powers, um, Jim Carrey breaking right. out, Dumb and Dumber, Ace Ventura. And I was the perfect age for all that comedy. And those were also two guys from Southern Ontario. Right. So it was just so clear to me that not only was it possible, but it's kind of a thing. Like right, that, right. That, that people from Southern Ontario become comedians. So. Right. That was a really key couple of years there for me when I was like 10 to 13, where I just knew like, oh, that's right, what right. I'm, that's where I want to be. Um, the Philippe Goyer thing was about nine years ago. So I, I, I was like 10 years into stand up by this point. Um, Sasha Baron Cohen had become my comedy idol and I had a friend who had studied at a clown school in Paris for two years and I was kind of curious about it and, you know, asked her about it. And um, she had studied under this guy, Philippe Goyer, and I said, oh, that's really interesting. She would talk about the class. It sounded really terrifying to me. Um, and she sent me a link to a, a testimonial from Sacha Baron Cohen where he basically just credits Philippe Goyer for everything he does like wow. says this is the funniest guy in the world you know all of my characters are fearless rooted. fearless yes. yeah <laughs> are are rooted in things i learned from this man and so it was really sasha baron cohen's testimonial that made me say i need to go meet this guy study with this guy so um yeah it was in toronto i went out to toronto for like a three-week intensive and it was definitely artistically the hardest thing i've ever done I wanted to quit, which is not very common for me to want to quit right. something. Um, but it's because I'm not much of an improviser and, and most of the class was just improv. He would right. ask you to improvise on the spot. He holds this giant drum. And the moment he doesn't like what you're doing, he bangs this drum, makes you stop and singles you out in front of the whole class and just rips into you, just makes fun of you. But in the funniest way, like he's right. so good at it, everyone's laughing at you. And then you sit down kind of humbled and you have to have the courage to keep jumping up there and, right. and trying and inviting his scorn. Um, and there was a lot of things that I learned in there, but I think at, at a fundamental level, he gives you an experience that is so difficult that literally since I took that class, I know that I will never have a more difficult experience on stage. That's that. And that's important because yeah. you're that, that's what makes you so comfortable. Cause you're like, now you can't. Yeah. That, that experience humiliation really will <laughs> make you such a better comic, you know? Yeah. But yeah. It's interesting that you say that when you're you decided to do. I mean, when it's again, you you decided to do a, an album, and you you say you say I'm not really the kind of performer you need to see, but clowning you need to see. You know? Yeah, it's interesting. And there so, is a joke on your album where you explain your face. The, the, the joke <laughs> yeah, about, yeah, right, right. Yeah, the joke yeah, about yeah. I, I love that joke. I'm um, skeptical. I'm making yeah. a skeptical face yes. and revealing to this racist guy that I'm actually a, a bit Chinese. Chinese. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I would say, you know, it's a good point. Uh, well, one of the questions I did ask him because I was struggling so much in this class is I said, "What's the difference between a clown and a comedian?" And he told me it's very simple. Um, a comedian is someone who goes on stage, says something that they think is funny and the audience laughs. 
And a clown is someone who goes on stage and says or does something that they think is funny and the audience doesn't laugh, but the way the clown responds to the failure endears them to the audience and eventually that thing becomes funny. And I think you can hear some of that in my standup because yeah. I really commit to things and just, if, if I think it's funny it's and so even it's not that funny, I'll just keep going back to it. And right. I'll even keep saying the same sentence. I over do and the over. same thing. Yeah, I yeah. do the same thing. Like when I don't get a laugh, sometimes it's like, I'm like, really? I work yeah. so yeah. hard, you know? Yeah. And, and it's so funny because they really do laugh because you're so brutally yeah. honest. But then some people will come up after the show and be like, tough crowd. I'm like, no, I was having fun. Yeah. Like, yeah. One of my jokes doesn't work. That's part of the fun, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, or if an audience member says something that's funnier than what I said, and I'm like, great, I've been working on this for 40 fucking years, and this guy, <laughs> you know? But that's so, that's fascinating. I love that. I love yeah. that. Yeah. He, so he was really focused on, he would call it the, the flop, the flop. Right. That, flop. that you have to be able to live in that. And, and when you're living in the flop, they always have to be able to see your joy. Right. And that's what he would always track when you were improvising in front of him is if he could see that you weren't enjoying what you were doing, that's when he would hit the drum and he would tear you apart. And that's what that's uh, why you wanted to quit, because he fucking knew exactly. Yeah. Because I was you. terrified. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 then I think another concept he had, which honestly, I can even just see in how amazing you are at interviewing, um, but it sounds like you're also doing it in, in your standup is he said the mistake a lot of people make is they go on stage and they try to be interesting. Right. And that the real task is to be interested. Right. Right. To be interested in what you're doing. And so when you're saying you say something and then the audience doesn't laugh and then you decide not to move on, but to interrogate it. Yes. And you're taking joy and you're so interested in interrogating your own right. failure. He, he would say that that's clowning, that that's, that's the spirit of clowning, at least. I'm a clown. I go. love that. I love that. <laughs> so you're 19, you go to Yuck Yucks. This yeah, is Yuck your Yucks. first time on stage? First time on stage at a Yuck Yucks. Um, in Ontario, was that? And no, then, so. No, no, in, Yuck Yucks. Wait, I have it written down. Vancouver. God, yeah. So I was in Guelph uh, and I knew I, you know, I was probably writing stand up and notebooks for the last two years of high school with no, nothing to do with it. Just knowing I was going to do stand up eventually, eventually. And, you know, wanted to maybe go to Toronto to do it, but it was really hard to coordinate that. We didn't, we didn't have a car for, we had a car for some period of high school, but not for many of the years of high school. And so it just wouldn't work out for me to make it to Toronto to do open mic. So uh, I moved to Vancouver when I was 19 and I think it was like my second or third day in the city. I just went to the, to the open mic and finally did it and, and bombed horribly. Um, but kept going back because, because uh, I knew I wanted it, but I, I didn't know how hard it would be, obviously. <laughs> okay. So you go, you go, you're 19, you've been writing stand up for two years. And, and like, are you writing, are you writing jokes or bits like I'm, or I'm writing, ideas. yeah, I'm writing kind of hackneyed versions of what I'm seeing on TV. So I remember one of the first bits I did was about how the, the Canadian military was getting made fun of because they had sent soldiers to the Middle East and they didn't have the right um, camouflage. They had just like khakis. And so I had this whole bit about, you know, oh, is the Canadian army shopping at the Gap? And Oh, that's you know, funny. I mean, the audience didn't really like it, but yeah. But it was definitely like, I was just mimicking what I was seeing on TV. And, you know, I had read, I had read at least one book. I can't remember what, which one it was, but some kind of how to write stand-up book. Um, so it was, I mean, kind of similar to what will happen when I finally do a show after the pandemic. I was just like in isolation writing stuff, but having no uh, reality check from an audience until, right, uh, right. 
So, Which of course is very necessary. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the whole art form, but did, so anything about school or like you're, are you carrying a notebook around with you all the time? Is this like on your mind? Like this yeah, is my I'm, goal. I got to keep doing this, you know, like practicing, you know, piano or something. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely, I, it, it was the first friends I made in the city. So this was my first time just to be out on my own. Right. So we're, we're standups. So that kind of like locked me into it of, you know, I got to keep doing this to, to develop this, uh, a social circle of some sort. And, and then honestly, it was also comedy albums was, you know, hearing, listening to lots of albums at that time, like kind of contemporary albums. And, um, and yeah, that's what was what so was pushing really- Thank you so much for listening to part one of Kill Me Now with Sean Devlin. Kill Me Now is produced by Laura Vogel, edited by Colin Schmeling. This podcast would not be possible without the help of Brittany Joe Sowards. Please subscribe. Please leave a review. Five stars only. Five stars, five stars, five stars. If you haven't bought my book, yes, I can say that. When they come for the comedians, we're all in trouble. You can get it at my website judygold.com you can get my cds i was gonna say but you know you download them now (laughs) my albums uh also there and my dates i'm performing a lot a lot i have like a lot of gigs coming up you know provincetown my last four shows in provincetown are are tonight tomorrow friday and saturday evenings and then i'm off to a city winery in new york and I'm going to Minneapolis. So check out my website, judygold.com. Follow me on Insta and Twitter at judygold, J-E-W-D-Y-G-O-L-D. You know, like Jew, because I'm Jew. Jew! Also, if you're not vaxxed, there's something really wrong with you and you need to get vaxxed unless you have like a really valid medical excuse get vaxxed wear a fucking mask i'm wearing two masks whenever i travel i don't even take it off on the airplane let's fucking eradicate this shit virus and fuck shit ass and um i'm thinking about the soldiers who gave up their lives for us and and for for, you know representing our country not being political well i guess i am i just you know we got to have some good news soon you know what I'm saying? So fucking wear a mask, get facts. I love you all for listening. If you're listening till the end, I love you even more. And by the way, I'm recording this on my mother's 99th birthday. I miss you so much, Ruth. And as we always say, so long. Don't forget to tune in next week to Just Kill Me Now. Um, for, it's Just Kill Me. Oh. Don't forget to turn uh, for part two on Just Kill Me no, it's not. It's just, just kill me. No. Judy Gold's just kill me. Just kill me now. Just kill me now. <laughs>